hope you enjoy this message from South City C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. We're going to crack into our sermon for tonight, and I had a, a thought of what I really wanted to leave you guys, what I wanted to share with you. When I was young and growing up, I decided to uh, read through the Bible. I brought a new Bible. I opened it up and I began to write in it as I read it, and I began to read through this Bible. I did a Bible in a year reading plan, and as I came to about halfway through that reading plan, I came to the Psalms. And I was reading the Psalms, and they're they're fantastic, wonderful pieces of material. And then I came to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16 just jumped out at me. It jumped out at me as a Psalm that I wanted to, uh, to read, but I wanted it to become part of who I was. And over the years, I've meditated on it, I have spent time with it, and I've always come back to it as something that's encouraged me. And my hope is tonight that it could be something that could encourage you. It starts like this. It says, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And what I want us to consider tonight is that phrase there, Apart from you, I have no good thing. What's the psalmist talking about? What does he mean? Why does he include this phrase in his psalm? Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, my initial reaction when I read this psalm was to look at it and to say, well, apart from you, God, I have no good thing. That means that the only good thing I have in life is God or the good things that God gives to me. And I think that's a really good start. And for a few years as I thought about this psalm, that was what I came up with. But then as I've really thought about it over the years, I don't think that that quite captures the depth of what David was trying to get at. And for us to do that, we need to actually head all the way back to the very beginning, to the first page of the Bible. And in the first page of the Bible, uh, the story of creation is told. And in this place where there is disorder, where there is chaos, where there is nothingness, God steps onto the scene. And he begins to make. And God said, let there be light, says Genesis 1-4. And there was light. And God saw the light, and he said that it was good, good. Now, that word good in Hebrew is actually the word tov. Can everyone say tov for me tonight? Tov. It is a really important little word. And what it means is it doesn't just mean good, like how's your day? Well, it's good. It means good as in it is is good for human flourishing. It is suitable for people to do something helpful and productive with. And so who defines that? When God sees that that is good, that is his way of not just recognizing its goodness, he is defining that it is good. He is deciding that it is good. And so we go on and we read the rest of Genesis chapter 1. And in that chapter, over and again, God creates. And again, he sees what he's created. And he says that it is good. Seven times in Genesis chapter 1. And then we head through Genesis chapter 2 into Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, we're caught into a scene of a garden. And in that garden, we have the temptation of humanity. And there is the snake. The snake is there with Eve. And she tempts her to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one tree, God said, do not eat from this tree. And we read what happens in Genesis 2, uh, verse 6. 
Uh, if we could put that up on the screen, I can't remember everything. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good, was tov for food, and pleasing to the eye, it's another Hebrew word, ta'ava, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So, right, back to the beginning, Genesis 1. God said it was good. Who says it's good? God does. And now we come to Genesis 3, and it's the first time that someone else looks at something and says, that's tov. And the very thing that she chooses is tov, is the very thing God said for her not to choose. And this is the story of humanity. This is the story of Scripture. If you go through your notes, I've given you a little Bible study there, of all of these different times when people have chosen good for themselves. We are caught in the difference of two definitions of good. Two different definitions of what, who's going to say that this is good. Are we going to side with God and what God says when he says it's good? Or... Are we going to side with what we see in our own eyes? Are we going to redefine it for ourselves apart from God and say that these things are good? And that's the story that Scripture paints us. From all of these stories, David and Bathsheba is basically a direct correlation to exactly what was going on here. The authors are intentionally using the same language. The rebellion in the book of Numbers when the, uh, the spies go into the land and they spy it out. And they say, look, it's, it would be better, it would be told for us to go back to Egypt. And then the two spies say, no, it's good for us to follow God and go into the land. There is a choice. Who is going to define what is good? So we head back to Psalm chapter 16. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Do you see how this, this phrase takes on more character now? It's more than just, hey, the only good thing I have in life is God. Or God is the one who gives me good things. I think it's this. I think it is that there are things in our life that have the potential to be good. But if we do them apart from God, they're not good. There are things in your life, things in my life, that have that potential to be good. If we choose to do them with God, they are. If we do choose to do them apart from God, and they're not. They're not good. And we could take all kinds of examples to show what this means. We could look at the area of sex and sexuality and how that has been uh, redefined in our world. And we could see very clearly how sex has been used for, for power and sex has been uh, used to enslave people. Or we could see how sex is part of God's good design beautiful for human flourishing. Or we could look at money, and we can clearly see how money is a tool that can ensnare us if we choose to lust after it, if it's pleasing to our eyes, if we choose to redefine it as the most important thing in our life, if we choose to trust it. Or money can, can free people. Money can alleviate suffering. Money can help people. Will we choose to do it with God or apart from God? Or even church, and that might sound like a really sacrilegious thing to say, how could church not be good? Well, let me tell you this. The church as an organization has done more pain to uh, people in the world than any other organization in all of history. 
And can I also tell you that the, the church has done more good to the whole world than any other organization in history. What's the difference? The difference is when we do church apart from God or we do church with God. So I really want us to apply this tonight. So I've picked uh, three different areas where I think this can be seen. Hopefully that's practical to your life, something for you to ponder on. One of them is relational, one of them is a bit more concrete, and then the other one is uh, slightly abstract, but you'll pick it up as we go. And the first one, the relational one, is all about friendship. Now friendship, friendship is a thing that in our world, unfortunately, is not done as well as it should be. Some people, have you ever met those people who when they are in one place, they act in one way? But then when they are in another place, they act another way. Because they're trying to win friends. They wear a mask. Or they're using their friendships as a potential for one-upmanship. What they're really doing is they're looking to their friendships to say, hey, how do I compare to you? And yes, I want to get close to you, but really I want to know if I'm better than you. And then there's the issue in our world with forgiveness. Apparently, one of the big problems uh, at the moment is, while well, we can see it in our world, is the inability to forgive. So that's why we've got all these people saying, yeah, I know you did something wrong 12 years ago, but I'm sorry, we can't forgive you for that. And that applies often to our friendships as well. And it's, it's no wonder, really, a lot of our examples of friendship, we don't have many good examples of what friendship really looks like. If I was to ask you to name uh, movies that deal with primarily romance on one side, and then movies that deal primarily with friendship on the other side, I think you would find that it is usually we're more interested in romance than, we're, than we are friendship. And even our great TV shows, you think of a show like Friends, and I love Friends, I, it makes me laugh, and, and I like the characters, and it is a lot of fun. But if you really dig down underneath that show, what it is is it's about people who don't do friendship well. They often don't communicate well with each other, they lie to each other, they mislead each other, and that's where the whole drama and the impetus of the show is based around. Every episode is around deception or not talking properly to each other. But friendship can be amazing. It can be something that if we embrace it, if we see how uh, friendship is in the eyes of God, if we choose to do it with him, it can make a massive difference in the way that we choose to do our friendship. We can lift people up. We can build people up. We can choose to open ourselves and be intimate with others. We can forgive. We can love. My wife was recently reading a biography of the great hymn writer John Newton, John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, former slave ship owner. But he's also a pastor. And as a pastor, he wrote many letters. And in these letters, he wrote to other pastors. And one day, he wrote a letter to another guy by the name of William Bull. And in this letter, and I heard this, and I, this was shocking to me for someone from the 18th century. He wrote this letter, and he said, I love you. Hey, William, I want you to know I love you. And I love the way that we spend time together getting to know God. And we prayerfully seek his will. And the way that you seek after him inspires me. And I, I want you to know I love you. And William Bull wrote back to him. And William Bull said to him, he said, you know, I don't think that anybody loves me. And it gets me really low. But I know you do, John. And Jonathan didn't love David as much as I love you. We don't talk like that, do we? 
For us, that's just like, well, I wouldn't walk up to you and say that. The, uh, after she told me this, I went to church that Sunday, and I uh, went to someone that I know fairly well, and I started shaking his hand, and he did that awkward thing that awkward people do where they just keep shaking your hand, you know, just shaking, shaking, shaking. And as he did that, he kind of looked off to the side because he knew it was awkward, and I kind of looked off to the side, and we didn't make eye contact, and we just remarked how awkward it was, And then I told him the story. I told him the story of William Bull and John Newton. And he said, well, maybe we should shake each other's hands again, but this time look into each other's eyes. (laughs) I was like, well, I'm a pastor, I suppose I have to. So I I did. I looked into his eyes, and after about 20 seconds, I said, I love you. And he looked at me, and he said, I love you. And I've got to tell you two things. Number one, that was the most incredibly awkward and embarrassing moment that I've had all year long. (laughs) And number two, outside of my family, that was the greatest human connection that I've had all year long. I mean, if we could do friendship with God, if we could choose to share ourselves with each other, if we could choose to love others well, encourage each other, how, how amazing is that? How great would that be? Without apart from you, I have no good thing you. I have good things. The second area, the more concrete one, is the area of technology. And I love technology. Who saw the uh, Olympic opening ceremony on Friday night? Anyone see that? Who saw the drones? Those drones that they had, hundreds of drones floating over the stadium, creating like the world. It was amazing, wasn't it? It was fantastic. I love uh, technology. And here's the thing about technology. You go, well, what does the Bible have to say about technology? Actually, if you look at it, it has quite a lot to say. It shows us that technology can either be used for good or it can be used for bad. You think about Noah and the building of the boat. That was technology. That was a new technology that was being created to save humanity. And then a few chapters later, you read uh, the Tower of Babel. And the point of the Tower of Babel was to show how human uh, advancement is able to stand in rebellion to God. That was the point of it. And you get these contrasting ways of looking at technology. Uh, You go further and you have a look at the idol makers versus those who were filled with the Spirit of God and were able to create all the things in the temple, new technology being created all the time. And the major one for us today is our mobile phones, our smartphones. And I could tell you all sorts of stats, like how if, uh, since in 2014, they did a study that showed that 60% of smartphone owners were connected to their work for 13 and a half hours a day. Uh, But I think an easier way to show this is, uh, I'll ask you three questions. Question number one, who here owns a smartphone? Right? Most of us. Okay, and question number two, who here would look at their smartphone uh, 30 minutes before bed, within 30 minutes before bed? Most of us. Who here would look at their smartphone within 30 minutes of waking up in the morning? Again, most of us, our smartphones have become just part of our life. But we need to watch that. The question I would ask is, is that technology ruling you Or are you able to step away from it? Are you trusting it more than you are trusting in God? Are you looking at at it to be the one to provide you with satisfaction rather than God? 
Do you know physios now are not talking about tennis elbow so much? You know tennis elbow? They're now talking about iPhone elbow. Because as people who are holding their iPhone so much are actually getting pain up in their elbow. I found this the other day. I was uh, uh, school holiday time, so my daughter wanted to go to the movies. Nice, right? Lovely to go to the movies with your daughter. So I watched a movie called Spirit Untamed, an animated movie about girls and horses. And it is the second time I've been to the movies to see it. That's, that's the life of a dad right there. And it was, it was fun. It was so fun to go with my little five-year-old daughter. And afterwards, we went down to the food court, and we were getting some lunch together. Now, my daughter, my five-year-old, is a very what you would call leisurely eater. She likes to take her time. She likes to enjoy every mouthful of food and then often big silences in between. And so I'm sitting there in the food court. And as I'm finished my food and she's only just started, uh, I actually did this. I reached my hand into my pocket and I put my hand on my mobile phone. And I thought, well, I'll just scroll through this. But I touched it and I thought, well, hang on a second. What if me doing this is showing her that she doesn't matter as much to me. What if I'm actually putting all my focus there rather than on her? My point at the moment is actually to be here with my daughter. Don't touch it, leave it alone. And so I had to just leave it in my pocket and leave it be and actually spend time with her. Now, technology can be used for great good. Our mobile phones, digital information, can be used to bring great good and kingdom advancement into the world. But we need to ask the question, are we doing that apart from God, or are we doing that with God? The third of these areas today is a bit more of an abstract one, and it's the area of ambition. Ambition, and straight away, you might think, you know, church, how can that be bad? You might also think, ambition, how can that be good? Because ambition is getting ahead, right? And we often see that as getting ahead in comparison to other people. One time, they were doing a question and answer with uh, the great theologian C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis uh, stood up, and he was talking about ambition. And he said this. Let's put that up on the screen. He said, ambition, we must be careful what we mean by it. If it means the desire to get ahead of other people, then it is bad. If it means simply wanting to do a thing well, then it's good. It isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as it can possibly be acted. But the wish to have his name in bigger types than the other actors, that's the bad one. And so someone from the crowd then yells out, and they say, okay, uh, C.S. Lewis, this, what you're saying is that uh, it's wartime at the moment, and if someone is a general, that's not a bad thing. But if they want to be a general, then it's a bad thing. And C.S. Lewis stops them and says, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. He said, if someone, is a, if someone is there in the war and they see the strategy that they think is going to win the war, then they absolutely should be a general and they should want to be a general. It's not about wanting, it's about your motivation. Is this about me and making me greater? Or is this about serving the world and bringing God's kingdom purposes to the world? You might think that having a lowly role is humble. But if God calls you to something bigger, then it's just disobedience. 
So we need to look and see. Not all of us are going to have massive ambitions. But I know that there are teachers here tonight. And maybe you need to open your mind to think, wow, maybe God could use me within that teaching area, even within education, within my school, to raise up to a higher level so that I can make a difference. I know there are lawyers here today, and maybe God is calling you to that high uh, place in your profession so that you can begin to speak into law, that you can begin to speak into some of the most powerful places in our country. There are songwriters, and the songwriters need to write songs that bring extra glory to God, that bring, extra, uh, that, that bring his kingdom more and more. Why? Not so that the name Phil Parks can be on it, but so that others can also sing of the greatness and the glory of God. Can I encourage you to be ambitious? John Stott said, if ambition for ourselves could be modest, but if it's ambition for God, for it to be truly worthy, can never be modest. And one thing I want to encourage us with tonight is to be ambitious for God's church. To be ambitious for this place. Do you know this service is more than a service? It is a light in this city. When we were uh, originally uh, talking through what, what the vision would be, which we had for a little while here, and we had a community of disciples reaching the world. And I was praying through that one day, and I felt God challenged me to say, look, it's not just a community of disciples reaching the world. What you've got to do here is bigger. And I want you to step out, and I want you to equip people to be able to go into their workplaces, to be able to go into their families, to be able to go into the relationships around them, and to live for me and speak for me and bring my kingdom there. So we changed it. Community of disciples changing the world. Ambition for God should never be modest. That is what this place, this place can be. And I want to charge you guys, Josh and Sarah, and the team that you build around you, to be people that are ambitious for what God can do through this place. And that's not just on you. That's on all of us to make this into something that can bring God's change. And there's going to come a, a season of consolidation where there will be a little time of trying to figure out, okay, what do things look like now and how do things work now? But amongst all of that, have a big heart, everybody, to see what God can do in this place. Be ambitious for him. So the question then is, if apart from him we can do no good thing, how do we find that goodness? How do we access it? Well, I think there are three things for us to consider. The first is that sometimes it happens by accident. All of us were created in the image of God. And so some of that goodness is naturally imbued to us. And that means that there are people who don't even know God, who are forgiving, who are loving, who are creating world change, bringing justice, even if they don't quite know how. But more explicitly, it is going to look like bringing our lives into line with his word making sure that what we do is in line with the word of God. But for David, he wasn't making a philosophical statement. He was making a personal statement. And so I think for each of us, it does mean that we need to make sure that we are connected above all things to God. Lord, you are my Lord. Which means great, high, mighty God, you are my personal Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And he continues in that psalm to show what this looks like. 
He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations, their offerings of blood, nor will I take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. See, for David, it was about all of his life. Everything, now, all the relationships that he had, the things happening, now what he had, all the things he was going to have in the future, his rest, his inheritance, beauty, was all about that relationship with God, as it should be for us. Going to bring you one more tonight, one more thing that we need to do with God, and that's our suffering. We need to ensure that we are bringing our suffering to him. And in Matthew 26, we read another story about another person in another garden with a temptation, a choice to make. And in verse 39, it says, going a little further, it's Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is full of sorrow. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. That word will in Greek is the word philo. The other way of translating that word is desire. Another human in another garden with another temptation. What will they choose? What God says is good or what they think is good? Their desire or God's desire? Jesus steps forward. And he chooses God's good above every other thing. And then what happens? He dies. He dies. It's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Surely if you choose God's good, it is going to work out for you. Surely if you choose God's good, it's going to be all right. Everything's going to be fine. But that's not always the case. There are times when to choose God's good means that we need to lay some things down and even allow parts of us to die. But when that happens, what happened with Jesus? Through him, through him choosing God's good, even when it looked like evil, it meant that we were able to receive the greatest gift ever. We were able to receive life. And that's the way it happens every single time. When you say, God, I want your tov, not my own, then we will embrace the life that he has for us. We will see it. We will experience it. It will be part of our lives. When I was 16 years old, I picked up my Bible and I read these words, apart from you, I have no good thing. It was 24 years ago. Since that time, I've lived in cities in New Zealand. I've lived in cities in England. I've been married. Uh, I have two children. 
I have a house. I have family members who have been sick. Some of them got better. I have friends who got sick. Some of them got better. Some of them didn't. Some of them died. I've had doubts. I've had insecurities. I don't know everything, but one thing that I know is true, I have seen is true, I have experienced is true, is that when you do life with God, he will bring goodness. He will bring life every single time. It's the only way to live. It's the only way to do life, to involve him in every single part of your life, every single part of your being. Phil, can you, and Ben, can you guys come and join me? And you guys can stand to your feet with us tonight as well. So my time with you is nearly done. But I have a question for you. Can you say alongside David, apart from you, I have no good thing. Apart from you, I have no tove. Apart from you, I know my life. My life doesn't satisfy. The message translation, the paraphrase of the Bible from the message says, without you, nothing makes sense. The only way things make sense is if we do them with God. And that's what I want to leave you with tonight. That challenge in every part of your life, today, tomorrow, every day, that you would do life with God, that you would choose to do your parenting with God, that you would choose to involve God in your finances, that you would choose to involve God in the decisions that you make, in the friendships that you have, in the way you use technology, the way you do sex and sexuality, the way that you do church, the way that you shine your light, that everything would come through that filter. Can you bow your heads tonight? I'd love to pray for you. Lord God, here we are. We get to live life. We have a certain amount of years on this planet. We have a number of days. We get to choose every day what we will do with that. And Lord, we want to choose you. So God, I pray you would come and you'd meet us in this moment. You'd encourage us and you'd challenge us. You'd invite us in to see what life can really be as we live it with you in our jobs, in our personal lives. Lord, even in those moments that no one else sees. Lord, I thank you that you have hardwired us to live lives of passion and of purpose. And it can be found in you only in you. So tonight, God, I pray for all of my friends here that you would show them your goodness and that they would choose to trust in you 
with absolutely everything that they have. Tonight, if you realize that there's an area of your life where you haven't allowed God in, you've been doing it apart from him, and you want to experience his goodness in this area, can you just give that to him tonight? It's a simple prayer in your heart saying, God, convict me, make me aware, and then help me to invite you in to open the door to every room in my house so that you might be resident there and I could do all of it with you. Jesus, come and meet with us tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness that you love to pour out on your people. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all that you are. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.